Welcome back to season four, episode four of the Pig X podcast. For those of you new to the Pig X podcast, welcome. This podcast was launched back in 2020 as part of the Pig Livability Grant, which brought together faculty and staff in research and extension at Iowa State University, Kansas State University, and Purdue University. The grant focused on research efforts to identify factors contributing to swine mortality in commercial production and to develop strategies and information that can be utilized to reduce mortality and maximize pig survivability. The grant also focused on how to best disseminate that information to those working day-to-day in the industry, and thus the PigX podcast was born. As we tackle the topic of swine mortality and continue to identify factors contributing to swine mortality in the commercial production system, today we focus on the topic of guilt nutrition and development and the role it plays in swine production systems. To help us dive deeper into this topic, I'm joined today by two industry experts and a couple familiar voices to the PigX podcast listeners. Matt Ramosier, a swine extension specialist, and Dr. Spencer Becker, a nutritionist at AB Vista within Swine Technical Services, joins after the break. We kick things off first with Matt to help define what guilt development is to set the framework for this episode. So I think when you think about guilt development, it's a really broad area and broad subject matter. And I think it's just, it's the culmination of lots of different match strategies that producers are taking into place to set those guilts up and prepare those guilts for the most productive life. And I think it includes all aspects of guilt development, whether it be obviously nutritional and growth management, like what we'll discuss, but also obviously more exposure and selection and things like that. Anything that we can do to, to set up the best population of gilts as they enter into the sow farm so that, that that next generation of sows coming in can be within the herd as long as possible and maximize productivity for that farm. So then when you think about setting up some of those nutritional goals, Spencer, given your background as a swine nutritionist, what are the things that are top of mind for you when you're helping folks set up nutrition goals for gilt development purposes? So like Matt said, I think we want to do our best to set her up for success in the herd in terms of longevity of not only her herself, but also survivability of her piglets and her offspring. And if we think about some key things to look at, obviously there's multiple aspects to it. But if we look at the literature that we have out there today and practices in place, we really want to optimize that growth rate of the animal. Today's genotypes are really set forward to maximize growth as much as possible and and lean potential, whereas in the developing guilt, we may not want that, maximize that growth as much as market hog. We really want to set those targets maybe in our diets a little bit differently than we would for a finishing animal. And when we think about uh, developing guilt and then her going through gestation and then lactation as well, We have to hit those targets not only for maintenance, not only for reproduction, but she's also still growing during that point in her life. I think Spencer brings up a really important concept. and I think something that the industry, at least from my viewpoint, that the industry is still trying to figure out how to best manage that growth rate during that development standpoint, because sort of a double-edged sword, right, where they grow too fast and you start to have extra increased stress on bone conformation and structure. And then ultimately those sows wind up heavier throughout their life and increased risk of injury or lameness later on, but too slow. And you really probably limit their genetic potential 
as far as reproductive capabilities uh, and guilts will be later to reach puberty, maybe compromised mammary development. So it's really, it's a, it's a tough task to really be able to hit the sweet spot and, and, and set those guilts up for success. So Spencer, as you think about setting up and implementing different strategies during the various stages of production, what phase is most important? And what are some strategies that you've seen implemented that worked well to support optimal success? So I think if we, you know, back up a step and we think about the lifetime of, of that guilt when she enters into the developing phase, you know, really during that nursery period, there's not, you know, too much that we do other than make sure that they stay healthy and, and they're able to grow adequately during that phase. And really when we start to evaluate nutritional strategies is post nursery or during that more grow to finish phase where their growth curve is really, really steep and really, really rapid. And we can do that. And there's been studies evaluating that a few different ways. One way we can think about doing that is looking at our lysine to energy ratio and different amino acids to compared to energy to minimize that, that growth growth rate are not minimized, but more optimized, lower than that. So they're not really maximizing to what their genetic potential is. So some of the recommendations that you see out there might be in to look at our marketing or our finishing requirements and, and lower that to maybe 97, 98% for the developing guilt. Typically feed intake, we're going to allow them ad lib during this period, right? Whatever they want. But another important part of this is looking at our calcium and phosphorus, which we know is obviously important for our, our bone growth and bone mineralization and stores within the body. Talk about how lameness is, is such a prevalent issue within our industry. And so if we look at our CalFOS requirements in a developing guilt, we're going to see those be typically 7 to 8% higher in a developing guilt uh, compared to what we would see in a market hog. I would say one other thing maybe that'd be interesting to add to that is, and obviously I think that what Spencer's describing there through the growing phase obviously applies to all producers, whether you're producing your own gilts or if you're purchasing gilts from a genetic supplier. I would say even for producers or multipliers, people who are, are making their own gilts internally or for genetic companies that have obviously have multiplication, I think it's often forgot about just how important that, that pre-weaning growth period can be to set up gilts for success. You know, if those gilts, you know, obviously we've got sows that can have extremely large litters and it makes it certainly complex for farm staff to be able to make sure that all pigs are getting adequate colostrum. But I think especially when we're talking about producing future replacement gilts, I don't think you can start too early as far as setting them up for success. So I think just with regards to, you know, different strategies, maybe you split suckle gilts away from boars uh, when they're nursing the sows and just trying to make sure that gilts, at least for sure, out of out of multiplication uh, situations are getting adequate colostrum to make sure that they're going to maximize that pre-weaning growth and make sure that they're as as well prepared when they go to weaning and, and enter that nursery phase. Because I think a lot of work would suggest that that pre-weaning growth also is indicative of future successes as you know reproductive replacements. I think that's a, a good point. The pre-weaning aspect to it, like Matt mentioned, we know that gilts from smaller litters are going to do better long term. Another factor I think plays an important part in this is the wean age of the animal. We know if we extend that wean age out to 23, 24 days of age, we can see benefits not only in terms of performance, but also setting up that animal best in terms of their immune health, intestinal health. So Matt, you mentioned multiplication and looking at larger groups there. When you think then about management of group size and space, what are the important keys to keep in mind there? 
Yeah, so it gets challenging. I think in general, a lot of the kind of industry recommendation is obviously you can increase growth rate, you know, through providing increased square footage through that growing phase. And I think in general, uh, we talk about finishing square foot compared to the developing gilt square footage. We're typically looking at probably about seven square foot to eight square foot for finishing, where in general recommendation for gilt development, we're looking at a minimum of 12 square feet. And obviously that's to, to provide a little bit more comfortable environment for that gilt to be reared in for both confirmationally speaking, want to make sure that skeletons staying as adequate as possible prior to going to the sow farm, but also from the standpoint of just limiting competition for feed, you don't want to energy restrict any gilts at that time. But much like what kind of Spencer alluded to, where we've got these fast-growing genotypes that can compromise things a little bit, we're now where we've got the gilts that do have extra square foot. Oftentimes, they can grow too fast and obviously can get to heavier weights before they're physiologically mature. So that does become a bit of a challenge when we talk about trying to manage body size, body weight, still be able to have them hit a physiological maturity so we can get that ideal replacement as far as age at puberty, age at breeding, and then weight at breeding, try to get those three, I'd say, criteria in check. It can make it a little bit more challenging if you've got gilts that are, are so fast growing and really perform well. Maybe they can reach some of those heavier weights before they get physiologically mature. So that can be a challenge. Uh, just as far as group management and size. So something just for producers to also try to keep in mind as well. And I think to kind of go off Matt and again, again, talking off, trying to reduce those heavier weights and limit their time to get to those higher, higher body weights. And um, we talked about optimizing lysine to energy ratio, but other things such as, you know, adding fiber to the diet have been evaluated. We know that pigs eat to their energy level or their energy needs. So it can be difficult to limit feed with just diluting the diet in terms of using fiber. But fiber also has been shown recently in, in more and more added literature to have additional benefits, not only to the gastrointestinal tract, but when we add in other feed technologies to fiber that can help the animal better utilize it, not only helps with diet costs, but also helps with using that fiber for energy needs as well as different nutrients as well. So then when you think about nutritional strategies specific for the breeding stage in particular, Spencer, what are some important ideas and factors to keep in mind there? We discussed already a little bit on the lysine and energy as well as some of the minerals in terms of calcium and phosphorus. I think another practice that's been proven pretty pretty well is the use of organic trace minerals. In breeding gilt diets, organic minerals, of course, being those that are chelated or complex to some organic compound, typically amino acids. And there's been very favorable results there in terms of organic minerals being able to improve lameness and hoof health in those females and mitigate those problems that producers may have. Another strategy in terms of when we go to first breed, that gill is looking at opportunities for flush feeding. And really those, when we refer to flush feeding, this is going to refer to increasing those, the intake of feed energy intake of the gill prior to breeding with the goal of improving ovulation rate. And there's kind of a catch 22 with this in terms of applying this practice. Um, within the system because flush feeding really the success of it is going to depend on when you breed that animal. So if you are able to breed her really at that first or second estrus and do flush feeding within those first seven to 10 days prior to breeding, we're going to see those improvements in ovulation rate. However, if you're 
um, not breeding till that third, or maybe you miss an estrus and get to the fourth, and she gets to those heavier weights increasing, that feed during that time may not be as beneficial and can actually be negative. What other factors are we missing here? I think, you know, when we talk about we get into these guilts, we get them, you know, get those guilts bred and, and introduced into the sow herd. I think the important thing is obviously is just to be, be able to maintain a minimum energy level requirement. So we're still meeting the, that guilt's maintenance requirements, growth requirements, and obviously the reproductive requirements that increase over the course of gestation. No different than when if you're feeding sows too, you know, as that sow gets further and further gestation, her energy for maintenance requirement increases because she's also got developing fetuses and, and placenta increasing in size and mass throughout the course of gestation. So being able to Meet that energy requirement becomes important. Different in the guilt, obviously, is that guilt's still growing and developing in frame size. I still think it's important to not overfeed that guilt. Obviously, we, we want to be able to manage body condition as much as possible because as we would have d- discussed on a previous episode, you know, that there's the, there's the highest fallout rate within the parity distribution occurs between parities one and two. So obviously we want to still be able to set those gilts up so they're going into farrowing and lactation in a proper body condition. Because sows obviously that have a, a higher in, higher feed intake and gestation tend to have lower lactation feed intakes and ultimately results in lower colostrum and milk production as well. And then probably subsequent adverse effects downstream is just far as getting those gilts to cycle back after parity one and, and onto parity two. So I think it's just important to make sure we're managing body condition and, and how much we're feeding those gilts through gestation to be able to set them up for lactation. I know there's been some thought previously, or, you know, around bump feeding or uh, what would be commonly called as say feeding gilts and increased energy the last three weeks or so of gestation, say from day 90 to farrowing. And I think ultimately a lot of that work is more or less shown that that increases body weight of the sow with only marginal increase in birth weight of the pig. And really that's the thought process behind it was that they wanted to be able, is that producers like to be able to increase birth, pig birth weight. So you have a little bit more thrifty at, uh, you know, when they, when they farrow. But I don't know if there's been much research that's really confirmed that from a bump feeding standpoint. If anything, you only get marginal increase in birth weight, but it tends to compromise your stillborn rate. And also it's just, you know, the sow ends up being heavier, doesn't tend to milk as hard. And then ultimately it's just less cost effective because you've, you've increased stillborn in the process as well. Matt, I think you summed up the bump feeding conclusions really well in terms of it not being real concrete that it's it's beneficial, but we've also seen negative effects of it. I think the effects, and specifically when you talk about, you know, those last three weeks of gestation. And I think some of the more interesting data comes when we look at that pre-farrow period. So really those two to four days before prior to farrowing when she's moved into the crate in the farrowing house um, and what the practices look like there in terms of do we continue to limit feed her? Do we increase her meal frequency? Do we allow her ad lib? And there's certainly some interesting data that has shown if we increase the meal frequency during that time, we can see benefits um, in performance and also with a female on her second litter as well. So certainly another strategy to look at and evaluate. Yeah, and I think especially when we get into talking about just getting that guilt through her lactation, you know, just general management things, I think obviously it's a it's a stressful time for that guilt. I think there's lots of things even just outside of nutrition that producers and caretakers on farm can, you know, be watchful of, you know, making sure that getting those gilts up, you know, a couple times a day to try to get them to eat, try to get them to drink, 
if going around and, and there's stale feed or a couple day old feed that they haven't cleaned up, obviously there's something that they don't like about it. So cleaning feeders out and getting fresh feed can certainly help appetite and just making sure that those sows are, and gilts are, gilts specifically are in a, as ideal of a situation to get them through parity one and, and hopefully cycle back and, and back to parity two. Well, Matt and Spencer, we certainly appreciate your time today. And as we wrap up this episode, we'd like to end with a couple of take-home messages here that each of our listeners can take away from today's episode. You know, I would say as far as for producers, I think it's just important to to really just as you're managing gilts through that GDU to keep a different mindset from obviously we've got different diets that we're feeding them from what we'd feed market hogs, but just to keep a different mindset as far as, you know, this is our next Next set of replacement females is likely going to make up at around 20% of the breeding herd. So it's it's certainly the largest proportion parity-wise of the breeding herd. So making sure we're treating them as such, treating them like the investment that they are. And then just managing body weight, managing condition as we're going into breeding. And then, you know, making sure we're setting them up for maximum success. I think it's there's a lot that can go into the nutrition side of things, but a lot of the formulations and diets can go to the wayside if it's not properly managed or those gilts aren't properly cared for. And I think, you know, it's something that a system struggles with, that taking time to do an evaluation of those. Obviously, we know that the data you get out of that is only as good as the data that is put into it. So I think definitely taking the time to focus on your guild development program, whether that's whatever your APIs are for your system, um, and evaluating those maybe more regularly so you're aware of what is happening with the early female. That wraps up this month's episode of the PigX Podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please be sure to rate and review us, then check out prior shows from the first three seasons. That closes us out for today, listeners. But don't worry, we'll be back next month with another great topic. Until then, I'm Delaney Howell, and this has been the PigX Podcast. PIGX is a national podcast hosted by the Pig Livability Project partners at Iowa State University, Kansas State University, and Purdue, and supported by the Iowa Pork Industry Center. For more information on the project, head to www.piglivability.org, or to inquire directly with questions regarding the project, email ipic at iastate.edu. PIGX. Ideas in the swine industry worth sharing.